Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back everyone. This time I've got two tales of wrecking for you. If you don't know what wrecking is, well, I'll let the stories do the work. But I will just say that from now until the inexpert discussion section, everything I'm going to say can be assumed to be part of the story only, and shouldn't be taken as reflective of any of the realities of wrecking and its prevalence or not, even in my little asides. Stories and realities do not always meet well. So, first off we've a very brief tale to kind of introduce the topic and because it's a fun little one, and then we'll dive into the main, much longer story, which is the meat of the episode. So without any further ado, let's kick off with the first little story, The Reverend and the Wreck. There is a technical term in the study of folklore and stories for those legends that are essentially the same in form but are found in many different places with the details changed so that they are ascribed to local places or personages. Migratory legends, they are called. The story of the church which is moved to the top of the hill by supernatural forces. The story of the piper or fiddler who enters a mysterious cave and can be heard playing music by those above until, abruptly, the sound stops. The story of the devil and the mound of earth he drops just short of a town he aimed to destroy, and a thousand more stories like it. The assumption here is that the tale itself is tailored to the place it is being told to, to make it more relatable or meaningful to a local audience. But it might not be that the tale is being changed, for there are some stories that may be found in many different locations simply for the fact that they have happened many, many times. So this is a story that may well have happened in many villages on the coast of Britain. It might be in Northumberland or in Kent. It could well be in Wales. But by quirks of history, possibly unfair quirks of history, it is best remembered now for happening in Cornwall. The county, to some the nation, at the end of the southwesterly peninsula that extends out from the island of Great Britain. An old place that's steeped in myth and magic but also a place of shipping and mining for millennia, highly connected to the international world. A place remote from much of England, maybe, but hardly some unsophisticated backwater, for its peoples and its fortunes were yet deeply entwined with the wider world. We're in one small village which shall remain nameless, and it's Sunday, and most people are, of course, where people should be on Sunday, unless they wish to be turned to stone, of course, but that's another story. The people are listening to their local parson or reverend or vicar. I'll be honest, my understandings of the distinction between them is vague in the extreme. But whatever, the probably parson is in the pulpit preaching to the pious parishioners when the door of the church bursts open and a soul who hasn't been quite so diligently observing the Sunday rules shouts into the little church. There's a wreck! Everyone knew at once what this meant. A ship had been wrecked on the coast somewhere close by. Many lives lost. Very sad indeed. But anyway, these weren't people any of them knew personally. 
Now the great vessel was broken up and pieces of it were washing up on the shore or were floating in the ocean close by, where small boats and divers could reach them. There was opportunity here for everyone in the community. Though of course, such things were only legal if everyone on board the boat was dead. No survivors. And there probably weren't any. Very dangerous place this coast. Very difficult thing to survive a shipwreck. No one wanted shipwrecks, of course. Terrible things. But if God in his infinite wisdom and good judgement ordained they had to happen, well, it was best if they happened nearby this little community. Most people in the congregation were poor, but even the richer members of it were not content with their lot in life. No level of wealth seems able to satisfy, so most people would always take more if it was offered. Who knows what treasures from far off places might be found on the coast but a few minutes away. The parson trailed off in his sermon as a ripple of disturbance spread through the crowd. People started to rise from their pews, a mass movement towards the doors began. Now, consider, this was a Sunday, the day of rest, when no one should work. And they were all in church where they had to be on this day. And of course, theft was a sin. So it perhaps should be no surprise when the well-trained, commanding voice of the preacher shouted an instruction from the pulpit, aimed at the church clerk who had reached the door and seemed about to disappear out of it. Close that door this instant! Acting more under instinct than thought, the clerk obeyed the command. The heavy church door swung shut and the departing congregation found their way blocked. A sudden awareness of where they were and what they were doing descended upon the flock, and they turned with appropriate sheepishness to look at the reverend. Though still greatly troubled by the itch that called them to get to the coast at the greatest of speeds, they knew they had other duties. For his part, the vicar, having given his instructions, was rapidly throwing off his bulky vestments. He chucked his gown over the pulpit and made with haste, pushing his way through the crowd to the door. When there, he turned and addressed them all once more. Right, my brothers and sisters in Christ, now we can all start fair. And he turned, pushed open the great door, and the congregation poured out to claim their share of the fortune. And that's it for that little story, a light introduction to the concept of wrecking. Now, it's worth saying at some point, and that might as well be here, that the word wrecking is used to describe any activity where people take goods from wrecked ships, usually describing situations where those goods have washed ashore or the whole ship has, rather than, say, elaborate diving expeditions, though sometimes small dives on or near the shore or collecting stuff in the waves on small boats is also considered wrecking. And that covers quite a lot of different activities. And that is quite confusing because that means wrecking does not necessarily refer to the act of wrecking a ship or being the person responsible for wrecking a ship, which I think the standard English conjugation of the word would lend you to believe. And the conspiracy theorist in my mind, put there by the CIA he was, suspects that this confusion might be somewhat intentional. Because wrecking and wreckers can equally refer to people who, 
might engage in engineering shipwrecks, but also just refers to anyone who takes material from a beach that's washed ashore from a wrecked ship. And those acts don't seem at all morally equivalent to me, but it serves a certain type, a certain class of person, to pretend that they are. Now it could be a perfectly innocent linguistic quirk that this just happens to tar all wreckers with the same brush, suggesting that anyone picking that thing up from the beach might be the equivalent of a murderer. But I'm somewhat sceptical. It's certainly not the only example in our language that tries to equate property damage or theft with much more brutal crimes. Anyway, there wasn't a good point to get that in there, so now you know you might have a better idea of what wrecking is, and we can now launch into this episode's second story, which, however, does feature the worst kind of wrecker. This is the story of the death of Cruel Coppinger. This is a story about a death. It is not a story about these deaths, but these deaths are a part of the story. They were far north now, and the days were cold, the nights colder still, especially compared to the warm, sunny seas in which they spent most of their days aboard the vessel. This was a quick and easy run. After a brief stop in Bilbao, they were making for the North Devonport of Barnstable, with a cargo as unexciting as it was rewarding. Good, steady, safe money. A much called for uneventful trip for this crew, after many adventures, as we'll euphemistically call them, in the colonies of South America. Adventures from which many had not returned, some paying with their lives, others leaving Spain behind to start new lives in the colonies. But they were easy to replace, because there were also those in the colonies who dearly wished to take a chance on their old lives back in Spain. And so the Spanish galleon's complement was quickly filled with a new contingent of able seamen. And the freezing English waters, thousands of miles away, were a welcome place to be for many. But though the area was well travelled and well known, this did not mean that it was guaranteed to be safe. Far from it. For while the wild tropical cyclones of the Caribbean were not here, those that could arise without warning, with an ungodly haste, and swallow fleets like some leviathan from the deep, the storms of Cornwall were far more frequent, and while not quite so fast, they'd still see you just as dead, dashed against the rocky coast. From Pentire Point to Heartland Light, a watery grave by day and night, as one rhyme said, referencing the North Cornish coast. Though the crew largely sourced from Spain and its colonies didn't know this rhyme, they still knew of the area's fearsome reputation. And this night was proving to be a very rough one indeed. A thick, ominous mist had settled at first. It was still and eerily quiet for a while. But then the winds had really picked up, and the ship was buffeted to and fro as great waves rocked it, and the rains came down. On deck was all a commotion, but these men knew what they were doing and had been through far rougher seas than this. They were a skilled crew, and though every man was working flat out to keep the vessel afloat, 
to secure its cargo and to protect all their lives in the face of this elemental fury, this was all just part of the job. There was no panic, just men grimly getting on with their unenviable work in appalling conditions, soaked to the skin, fair freezing. But the ship? The ship was well built and sturdy, as were the men, and there was never a question that they'd make it. The crew was all too aware not just of the hazards of the storm itself, but of the fear of it pushing in a direction no one wanted to go, towards those ill-lit rocky shores of northern Cornwall. The ship and her crew would have to weather it, to remain at sea unless safe harbour could be found. And safe harbour in this place was a rare thing indeed. The navigators had a tricky task at the best of times, and this was not the best of times. The storm had been raging all around them in that darkness for hours, when excited shouts came. A light had been seen through the rain and fog. A dim light, not the bright signal of a lighthouse that stood out even in such weather, but the much duller lights of another vessel, bobbing relatively gently in the waves. A ship in harbour. It was just what they needed, they couldn't wait much longer. Using their reserves of energy, the crew turned the ship towards their new destination. They weren't too far off of it at all, it seemed. Rest was still a good long way away, but it would be coming, and this allowed the tired men to redouble their efforts. The roar of the rain, the wind and the sea continued unabated, but they appeared less threatening now, just minor irritants to get through before the crew could finally rest. Crack! The cracking of the ship's hull as it slammed at full speed onto a jagged rock hidden just under the water. It sounded even above the storm. Crack! And then another crack as the mast came down. And then the screams of terror began. In horrified shock, the ship's navigator looked helplessly at the swaying lights of that other ship that couldn't have been a few hundred metres away. How? How had it got there? How? He was shot through with an icy cold dread, uncomprehending the mistakes he had made. But he didn't have long to consider it, as he was thrown from the stricken ship as it was smashed and dashed against the rocks. The night was full of terror, screams and violent deaths at the vicious hands of the sea and the cliffs. Worst of all were those who didn't scream because they couldn't, who opened their mouths and filled their lungs with water. Tens of men slaughtered, most brutally without mercy. But though those wild elements did the work, they bore no malice to their victims, no desire to harm them, could not comprehend them in the slightest. They were simply tools, skillfully and horrifically wielded by the crew's actual murderer. He was standing on the shore, looking at the wreck, and smiling broadly through the rain. It's a couple of decades earlier. This is a story about a death, but every death requires a life. We're going to come in about a third of the way through this life. There is a very oft-used trope or scene that you will probably be familiar with. A man, almost always a man, is standing outside a house looking up at an open first floor window, or second floor if you're American, and he's pleading. Things like, come on babe, don't do this, be reasonable, that kind of thing. From inside there's noises, maybe shouting, a bit indistinct. 
Then sometimes as this trope plays out, a woman leans out the window and shouts at him. You heard me, we're over, I don't want to see you in my life ever again, clear off with you. Sometimes that bit doesn't happen and instead it just cuts to the next part, which has bags being thrown out of the window and landing next to the man with a foot. Then the window is slammed shut. It's a good scene to start something off, begin your story in the middle kind of approach to storytelling, it cuts straight into this hero's journey type tale without actually having to describe the boring normal world and just show how this person's life has been turned upside down and then you can get into things straight away. The guy looks up at the window for a bit but eventually he always picks up his bag and walks off. And we enter this story on that scene. Now it's not quite the same but it has that energy. Some pirates play the role of the woman doing the kicking out and another pirate is playing the role of the kicked out. The dread pirate ship was sighted off Whitsand Bay. By its unusual rigging, by its distinct lack of recognisable flag, the fishermen could tell that this was no usual ship, and they made haste to return to shore. Raids were not common, but everyone knew that they happened. Pirates would come ashore, abduct people, and leave villagers empty, doing some plundering in the process. Now, the press gangs of the Royal Navy would do exactly the same, of course, just as bad if not worse, there was little difference between them, but right now the pirate ship was the worry, for it was approaching fast. A day's lost fishing was no small thing, but it was the least of the fishermen's worries now. The small boats in the bay turned for shore, and men there sent word to the lords and started to gather weapons themselves. The foreboding vessel stopped a little way offshore, and a smaller boat was lowered from it. I imagine the bags I just talked about were thrown from the deck of the ship into the smaller boat as it was being lowered. And stay away, came the voices of the pirates. And then the ship turned and left, leaving behind a dinky little boat with a single occupant. A man who, as it was to turn out, was the kind of wrong'un that even pirates didn't want to be associated with for long. And now he was marooned on the shores of Cornwall. For a small while he did nothing, watched the ship sail away. But then he picked up his oars and began to row to shore, reaching the coast when the ship of his former compatriots was but a distant dot on the horizon. A crowd gathered to meet him. A mighty man he was, the powerful arms and chest of a sailor, and he was clearly a foreigner. Though this was a time when foreigner could mean a man from Denmark, from the African interior, or from Devon, with about equal likelihood so his actual origins will remain shrouded in mystery. But he was not from this little Cornish community. For someone who had just been cast off a ship in a land that was not his own, the man was not at all the shrinking figure begging for assistance one might have expected. No, he was made of far sterner stuff than that. Not a common sort, this. One truly used to navigating life's hardships. As his little boat reached the shore, he clambered out and strode onto the beach with his meagre possessions slung over his back, and confidently into the crowd he waded, seeming to pay them little heed. People who had come to question him parted around him, for his assured strides conveyed an unmistakable air of power and command. He was the perfect terrible lead in a romantic fiction, 
the kind of roguish bad boy that women would foolishly desire, who could take them away from their boring lives, offering adventure, excitement, romance, but who in reality was probably just a colossal jerk. A colossal jerk who could take women away from their boring lives, to be fair. He had a certain black beard from our flag means death when he's got his mojo energy to him, though very much without the gay. He looked around at the people without saying much, and then suddenly it was all action. The stranger made straight for the horse of a young, slightly better off woman who'd come down to see the pirates. In a fluid motion he took a fine red Welsh cloak from an old woman, threw it around his shoulders, and didn't stop as he strode towards the horse. With ease he pulled himself up behind the young woman, reached around her, grabbed the reins, and before anyone could react he shouted at the horse in his foreign tongue, which could have been Chinese or Spanish or Welsh or even just a Cockney accent. And the creature obeyed its new master, unhesitatingly riding off away from the crowd, who were left in its dust, standing in a kind of stupid daze and having no idea what monster had just arrived on their shores. I would once have called the events that are to play out next unbelievable, fantastic, but alas I've seen too many documentaries on fake heiresses and read too many accounts of effective Nigerian prince scams to not have complete faith in the seemingly demon-like power of confidence tricksters to work their psychological malediction. So I am completely credulous when I hear the foreigner went to the home of the woman and her ageing father. There he introduced himself as a temporarily embarrassed noble who came to be in Cornwall due to the actions of unjust men. It was a lengthy, much-knotted yarn that overwhelmed his host's ability to think critically. He was apparently fleeing his homeland because he had an arranged marriage with some rich but old widow, and he was the sort who instead wanted to find love, a romantic soul. And he was now expecting correspondence and, crucially, remittances from his friends overseas. If he could just be allowed to stay a while, then the hospitality he received would be returned many times over. A perfectly plausible story, and what luck for Dina, for that was the young woman's name, and her father. And he was set up in the house, outfitted by his hosts in a fine purple coat, an embroidered vest, and fine never garments to match. Well, soon he looked all the part of the noble he claimed to be. And he was charming in a way, and manly, and apparently rich once these remittances came in and Dinah fell for this guest of theirs, and her father was happy for it as well. But he was an old man, and in very little time grew sick and passed away. Not before giving his blessings for the happy couple to be married though. And once the marriage went ahead, well, the stranger, who gave his name as Coppinger, now had a reasonably decent house and money and some connection to that county. Because of course at this point women didn't own property, don't be so silly pretty good going for a man who was cast off a pirate ship a few months before with almost nothing to his name. And once he had established himself so, well that was hardly enough for this man, and he could let loose the real Coppinger. For Coppinger was a man with a particular skill set and an aptitude for convincing others to let him put it into practice. The mask dropped and the man behind it was revealed in all his terrible, awful glory. He made friends and influenced people. This was a poor area, 
Despite its international connections, the wealth that was generated was not evenly distributed, and many were simply eking out the bare minimum of living and looking for opportunities to better their meagre stations in life. Others were just bastards. Many of them were already engaged in a variety of nefarious, illicit activities. Smuggling, poaching, thievery. You know when I say nefarious and illicit, I do just mean taking money from the rich. The rich who would gain their wealth by taxing the poor to the hilt and, oh yes, by conquering and enslaving the inhabitants of countries far away and stealing all their goods. Oh no, the horrors of smuggling. Stealing from the government so they'll have less money to pay mercenaries to invade places and murder their inhabitants. How awful these smugglers are. Oh no, wreckers! All these goods should clearly go back to the very rich men who owned these ships and who didn't give a jot when their crews died apart from a purely financial sense. They surely deserve it more than some poor Cornish people. It's difficult for me to get really mad at these people as they were is all I'm saying. And if a story wants you to hate a poacher or a smuggler, then it will tend to do that by using the Marvel movie trick of making the villain have very reasonable points, but then having them kill someone for no real reason. So you definitely know they're evil, despite how reasonable all their points seem. But Coppinger, well, he doesn't need that treatment in this story, actually. He was cut from a different cloth than these minor so-called villains. He would take this group of apparent ne'er-do-wells, but just people trying to make a living in a cruel world, and he would mould them into something much nastier and much more successful. Like many mobsters before and after him, Coppinger had soon built up a gang of vicious cutthroats who went on to rule Cornwall. As for his domestic life, well, apparently, wild uproar and domestic revelry appalled the neighbourhood every day and night. Which doesn't sound that bad to me. Maybe I'm just a little jealous. For everyone who wasn't at his wild parties, this Al Capone slash Cray Brothers slash Thomas Shelby type character was a terror. And he was also the man in charge. Feared and respected, but mostly feared, throughout the county. The Revenue, the organisation tasked with collecting taxes that should be being paid on imported goods. Well, the Revenue, such as it was at the time, made half-hearted attempts every now and then to stop him. But their power here was weak. Many of the local operatives could simply be bought or threatened off. And those who couldn't, well, he dealt with them more severely. A rumour went around that a Revenue man's head was serving as the figurehead of one of the gang's boats tied to the gunwale and that served to keep them at bay. While many and varied and sometimes sympathetic were the reasons that the men of Cornwall joined his gang, the same could not be said of Coppinger himself. He was a violent, sadistic man who enjoyed the torment that he inflicted. Violence was not simply used in his line of work to achieve some other goal, it was an end upon itself. This monstrous man terrorised his local community, enjoying their torment immensely. And in doing so, of course, he attracted others to him, desperate to avoid his furious wrath. He acquired the sobriquet Cruel Coppinger, and well-deserved it was. At one time, a certain brave parson spoke out against his atrocities. The pious man was one day riding home across some desolate heath, of which Cornwall has more than its fair share, 
when behind him came the clatter of hoofbeats and a terrible blood-curdling yell. The startled clergyman turned in his saddle to see cruel Coppinger riding down upon him, whip in hand. He circled the poor priest and whipped him black and blue, and while leaving him just about alive, declared, There, my tithe to the church is paid. Keep the receipt. But his favourite crime of all combined money-making, the violence, and his almost mystical attachment to the sea, an entity as terrible as he was. The scrotum-tightening sea, as Joyce would have it. What a quote. It was from the sea that Coppinger got his greatest riches and dealt his most vicious violence. Now shipwrecks had long provided much wealth for the people of Cornwall. Coppinger would just now ensure that there were many, many more. It was a trick he had learned somewhere else many years ago, and now he brought it to this land. On particularly dark or stormy nights, a lantern was hung around the neck of a horse, and then the head of the horse was tied to one of the horse's forelegs, if you can imagine, kind of not completely tight to it, but just attached to it to restrict the movement. Pretty odd seeming, but there was method in the madness. For the temporarily hobbled creature was then led along a coastal path. And with the lantern hanging from the beast's neck, this very particular combination would apparently result in a light moving that looked very like the stern light of a vessel. Ships would assume a safe harbour, and like the doomed Spanish galleon I talked about earlier, inland they would come, only to be dashed on the rocks. A fiendishly cunning plan. A deathly, dastardly scheme. Now sometimes it didn't work 100%, by which I mean there was a chance that those poor, unfortunate sailors might survive their ship's destruction and swim or be washed to shore, find their way into some cove or scramble up over the rocks. Exhausted, terrified, but they'd survived. There's an old, very basic catch-you-out riddle. A plane crashes in the channel exactly in the middle between England and France. Where do you bury the survivors? With the correct answer being you don't bury the survivors. But apparently Coppinger had got that answer wrong sometime in his childhood and now took it to heart. Because the sailors survived just long enough to meet Coppinger's hammer or hatchet coming down upon them. For if there were any survivors of a shipwreck, then the law said that the ship wasn't a wreck. And Coppinger cared about being on the right side of the law. So he simply had to make sure the survivors were buried. Now I could go on describing the sadistic depravities of this man. I've got more details here of hideous things he did and I could relate them to you. But you know what, for those people who need to satisfy their sick desire to hear all the grisly details of murders and salivate over them, well there are a lot of true crime podcasts out there and they provide that service very well and honestly far better than I'm able to. So why don't you go check one of them out, you sick puppies, no judgement. Instead, I want to skip ahead in Coppinger's life quite a long way as it happens, because nothing really changes. That is basically how Coppinger's life goes. Cornwall is for decades enthralled to this awful man who came in from the sea so suddenly, like a wrecking ball, because he was a wrecker. Uh, editor's note, workshop this joke. So there is a joke, or take it out. Seriously, Graham, have a word with yourself. The quality's just disintegrating here. And the people remained so enthralled for decades, 
Coppinger continued to prosper, his gang continued to rule the county, and innocents continued to die. This isn't really a story about that. It's a story about a death. Coppinger never got his just desserts. He was not killed by some rival upstart, nor had the revenue catch up with him, nor was he removed from his kingship by the angry relative of a murdered man on some kind of Tarantino-esque revenge quest. He lived long and well enough, bringing misery to others as long as he did so. But as he got older, like many before him, he did slow down a little, had a large farm on the coast, and spent more and more of his time there. His poor wife passed on, and though he didn't want for female company, he never married again. His activities gradually reduced. The younger generation took over, and his organisation began to weaken as they fought amongst themselves, as such people often do. But with his dark and terrible reputation, he was left alone to a peaceful retirement. The one thing he as a mob boss had failed to do was to build up a dynasty. No godfather this, he had not the temperament for it, it appeared. So he lived alone, surrounded only by his servants, wages paid in currencies from all corners of the world, his ill-begotten fortune. It was harvest time, the days were long and hot, and the dark bedchamber where the wrecker lay was stifling, sticky and oppressive. Flies buzzed around. Perfectly normal, of course, but mixed with the smell of the man who barely left his bed in days, They added to a general air of malaise. He'd been ill for a while now, and of course he had servants to tend to him, but there was not much that they could do as his condition worsened. It wasn't clear what the problem was exactly, save that catch-all category of old age. At first he simply seemed to lack the energy which had defined him so previously, scarce able to raise himself from his bed, and he would lie there for days, sometimes seeming to have bad dreams. But this phase ended abruptly one day, and was immediately replaced with a far more dramatic one. The aged Coppinger started to shout out in his bed, shout and scream and rave. I can see them, I can see them! Help me, help me, please help me! He would beg and plead over and over. His words were completely out of character for a man who had always been so confident, so assured, so without any kind of fear in his eyes. He grabbed the arm of a servant tightly. The sailors, the sailors, they're, they're here, they're here. And they were, everywhere, so many, for in that sweltering summer room he could see them clearly. The ghosts of all the men he had killed. Remember that story I told you about the ship before? Imagine how many ships had been wrecked over the years, how many killed. And not just men, for women and children were on the ships too, and they too had suffered at his cruel hands. And now the spectres crowded into that space, suffocating the man in his bed, groaning, gargling, crying out, limbs missing where Coppinger had severed them, heads hanging off at odd angles, chests ripped open, dripping wet with briny water, blood and viscera intermixing. Some of them were wrapped in green tendrils of seaweed, Others coughed up water and sand, and all of them, every single one of those damned souls, drawn from all corners of the world, fixed what eyes they had on the man in the bed, 
They knew it wouldn't be long now before they would get their hands on his damned soul. They're coming for me, they're coming for me, he ranted and raved, and his shrieks at his terrible visions could be heard for miles around. A call went out for someone to help the dying man, and not one but several parsons responded to that call. For a while many years ago that brave man of the cloth had challenged Coppinger, most had neither his courage nor his moral fortitude. And the wrecker was, of course, quite rich. A call at his house before his death was a good way to extract some of that shadily acquired wealth from him, for the good of the church or something. So Parsons gathered around him in the dark room. There were enough of them that they were beginning to fill it up somewhat, and the heat really became unbearable. Great drops of brackish sweat fell from their brows and intermingled on the floor with the stormy ocean waters that only the screaming Coppinger could see. He shrieked some more and the Parsons crowded in closer. At first it seemed to them that there was nothing untoward, except of course for the dying screams of the once-feared wrecker. But after a moment or two acclimatising, they could feel it too. There was something wrong in this pine-panelled room. Perspiration-soaked hairs stood up on their necks and shivers ran through the men. Something was here. The shadows lengthened. Slightly away from the house there was a barley field on the edge of the cliffs. The sky was glorious and free of clouds and men were amongst the golden crop scythes in hand, harvesting it, for such was the season. The day was still and ever so calm, not the slightest gust of wind disturbed the crop. The men worked methodically. The yellow grasses fell as the blades swiped through them. It was hot, thirsty work. But all of a sudden, seemingly arising from nowhere, a great gust of wind passed through the field, bringing with it a freezing chill, quite unnatural in that sun-soaked day. The wind was blowing in from the sea, and the men in the field looked up and as they did they heard words in a hollow voice drifting in on the cold air. The hour has come, but the man has not. And as they looked in the direction it came from, they could see something out there beyond the cliffs. Out in the sea was a ship. A great black square-rigged ship, sails set, coming in fast, across the still blue ocean, pushed by this chill wind. The men stopped their work to stare as the vessel covered vast distances quickly, and as she got closer to the cliffs, great black clouds arose in the air around her, coming up from the ocean itself, thickening and darkening, and within them lightning flashed, and a great storm formed, all whirling fierce dark clouds, a storm centred right upon the black ominous vessel. The sky around remained a brilliant blue, within which there was a small patch hosting a nightmarish tempest, which yet did not seem to slow down the ship at its centre one jot. And now the men of the harvest were really worried. They threw down their tools and fled to the village, and as they did they heard from the farmhouse the screams of Coppinger, intermingled with the screams of something else. Something else they cared not to think too much about.
Inside that room, the Parsons were locked in holy combat with an unholy force. Gathered around the bed as Coppinger screamed, some of them were praying, some had Bibles out and were reading. Words were intoned, verses read. The great hulking thing in the shadows was warping and writhing at their words, but still it remained strong. There was a burst of light, and the room that had been as dark as the grave was as dazzlingly lit as a stage. And now the Parsons too could hear the waves breaking all around them, and the groans and curses of the already dead. The thing in the room that had come to claim the soul of the man withered under the theomantic assault. It screamed and it cursed the Parsons, but they kept on at it, despite the supernatural happenings all around them, despite the waves crashing, despite all the horror of the beings that moved through them. And the creature's power waned. It grew smaller and smaller, shrinking until it took the form of a fly. But though it was much reduced, the devil didn't entirely leave. It buzzed around in that form. And as the room went dark once more, there was a tremendous roar of thunder from the ceiling, the walls, the floor, all around. It seemed that while the Parsons' collective power could just about contain the demon, they could not contend with both that and the fury of the ocean which raged around them, filled with its unquiet, revenge-thirsty dead. There was a flash of lightning that came from the sky that was inside the room. It blinded the Parsons for an instant and stopped them in their chanting, and when their vision returned, they saw that fires had started around the bed, where Coppinger continued to scream in his death throes. No phantom fires were these, the house was burning. And at that, the Parsons, who had done a fine job given they were only really in it for the money, finally beat a retreat, fleeing the room as Coppinger shouted after them, cursed them. Downstairs they went, and together with the servants, they rushed out of the farmhouse. They fled outwards into a day they found was as dark as night, for the storm that had arrived with the death ship had now centred itself around the farmhouse. Flames quickly engulfed the building, not dampened in the slightest by the localised storm. The men who had been doing the harvesting looked on as the house shook, and within mere instants of the Parsons fleeing, the entire building collapsed. The shape of some great shadowy horned figure appearing briefly in the flaming wreckage before disappearing upwards into the storm. And the sudden destruction of the building seemed to spell the beginning of the end of it. With that, the black clouds rolled away from the burning wreckage to the sea and to that black clad ship, which, once the storm reached it, at once turned and sailed away amidst a blaze of lightning and the roar of the thunder far out into the ocean until finally it disappeared over the horizon and everything was quiet and still once again Now in many ways it feels like the story should probably end here, but it doesn't quite. There was still some stuff to clear up. The house was in ruins, yes, but the flames seemed quickly extinguished and the house was oddly untouched by heat. The fire had not had time to reach the timbers, they just looked snapped as if by some great force. There was a crowd here now, a crowd drawn from all sections of the community. Though it was the harvest, the day's work was dropped after seeing these events. This needed cleared up, everyone agreed. 
They couldn't leave this open sore in the form of a house here. Besides, many of them had been waiting years, waiting all their lives in some cases, to rid the area of the stain of Coppinger's murderous ways. The Parsons tried to regain some authority. Find the body and get it buried, they said. That was the most important thing to do first. A body was to be found, unburnt but very much broken. A ghastly look on Coppinger's face. Eyes expanded, mouth open, frozen in an expression that was unmistakably one of absolute mind-destroying terror. It was difficult for even the men of stoutest heart to gaze upon that wretched body for more than a few seconds. Such were the visions of horror that it somehow inspired in them. Visions of a crushing weight of water, of desperation, of a sickening burning feeling in their throat, pressure behind the eyes, horrible choking sensations that seemed inescapable. Oof, oof. They turned their heads away. A crude makeshift coffin was hastily prepared, put together partially from bits of broken board and timber from the fallen house. And a bunch of those bravest men, with the parsons constantly saying words around them, moved the wretched body into the coffin and then nailed it firmly shut. Up onto shoulders it was hoisted, and they began the walk to the churchyard there and then, the whole of the little community accompanying them for the funeral. It was strange. Even though in his old age Coppinger was much reduced in size from his almost Herculean form, he had still been a big man. But the coffin seemed to weigh almost nothing at all. Which was odd. They'd put the body in it. The body had to still be there. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. That was best. Now you might think that with the departure of the ship the supernatural entities were done. And so had the people. And yet, from behind the crowd there came a great bellowing snort. <coughs> People turned. It was large and jet black. The gigantic pig was walking assuredly along the track behind the people, its eyes fixed upon them. Shoo, shoo, said a few, and made the universal shooing motion, hands bent downwards, palms facing inwards, and kind of waving them around. But the pig trotted up to the people without a care and it joined the funeral procession. It was a very large pig indeed, and not one that anyone recognised. There were farmers and butchers amongst them, and no one was claiming the pig as their own. It shouldn't be here amongst them, so surely someone was going to do something about it. Drive it to a pen, probably quids in for them. Or get rid of it at the very least. People looked from one to another, and yet for unvoiced reasons, nobody seemed keen to escort the pig. Quite inexplicably by the usual approach to livestock, the Parsons found themselves being gently hinted towards pig-wrangling duty. They took a look at that confident hulk of a swine that was now keeping pace with the coffin carriers. Sized it up. They'd just done pretty well against a demon of some kind, maybe even the devil himself. They were feeling cocky. One went towards the beast and it turned its head to look at the man, and snarled, showing huge wet teeth dripping with viscera. It was a very physical presence compared to the thing in the room. It moved towards the parson, and he backed away. And the beast once again took on a more placid demeanour, and resumed its trotting. No one made to approach it again. Everyone was unnerved, and all of this only strengthened their resolves to get the wretched thing done and the man well and truly buried. 
The churchyard was drawing near, but as it did so, the blue sky yet again filled with dark clouds rushing inwards from nowhere, forming a maelstrom overhead. They'd thought all this was done for when the ship left, but whatever was causing these supernatural meteorological events didn't obey the rules as they understood them. Once again the rain came down, icy and hard along with lumps of hail which bounced off the earth and came down with a force that almost cut flesh. The wind roared and the tempest raged as before, and again lightning forked down from it. It was all becoming too much to cope with, and the coffin bearers with their feather-light load started in a sprint towards the churchyard, and the other members of the procession soon followed them. Such was the ferocity of this sudden downpour, that the coffin was left abandoned at the stile to the churchyard, as the people rushed inside the house of God to get out of the weather, yes, but to also gain the protection of the deity, clearly much needed against the diabolical forces raging outside. It was dark as night in the church, candles had to be lit, and the storm raged outside, the windows rattled in their panes and rain beat down constantly and mercilessly. No one said a word to each other. They huddled together, held one another, prayed a little. On and on it went until as suddenly as it arrived the storm ceased. The summer's day returned. All was quiet and still and warm. Birdsong could be heard from the churchyard. Slowly, trepidatiously, they ventured out, made for the coffin to finish the deed. But the coffin was not there, and neither was the black pig. All that remained were a few nails and a few small singed pieces of wood. The jagged marks of lightning burnt across them. And that was the end of Cruel Coppinger. And the moral of that tale was... Well, I'm not quite sure if there was one, actually... Be a wrecker, and maybe something bad will happen to you after death, but an unspecified bad thing, but it's bad. But life, life will be fine, because there isn't the powers on Earth to punish you. Let's back up a second and talk about the stories. Okay, so this was actually two different stories that I merged together into one, which, while technically different, seemed to go together so well that it just made sense. You won't find this particular story anywhere else, is what that means. So the first story was the life of Coppinger, and the second one was the story about the death ship coming for the wrecker, who in the original was unnamed. The life of Coppinger story was taken from an account in Robert S. Hawker's Footprints of Former Men in Far Cornwall, a book published in 1893 after the author's death, made up of articles he'd published in the 1870s and 1880s. Robert S. Hawker was an antiquarian poet and an Anglican priest who lived in Cornwall, knew the county very well and had a genuine connection with shipwrecks in that he was involved in efforts to save victims of wrecks off the Cornish coast and acted as something of a lifeguard and worked with lifeboatmen. He seems to have been a massive character and many tall tales have sprung up around him, including that he used to dress up as a mermaid and that he excommunicated his cat for working on a Sunday. He was one of those Victorian eccentrics who is an interesting character, though working out precisely what stories about him are true and what are false is a very difficult task. He was also a man who cared a lot about Cornwall, 
He wrote The Song of the Western Men, often called Trelawney, which is kind of an unofficial Cornish national anthem up to this very day. So obviously there's a lot to say about this guy. That gives you the summary if you're interested. There are some links on the website. Go check them out. So his biography of Coppinger was one of many biographical studies he made of famous Cornish characters. And I'll quote from the preface of a 1903 edition to that work to give you a flavour of the accuracy of it. That says that, quote, There is an element of fiction in Hawker's biographical studies. He never lets facts, or the absence of them, stand in the way of his imagination. Unquote. So, yes, take from that what you will, this is a story. But Hawker is very much presenting Coppinger as a real person. The book even includes a picture of the house in which he lived. Now this biography is actually a much longer tale than the brief sketch I've included here, and has many lurid details I skipped over and a few differences. Hawker pegs him as Danish rather than just foreign, but I kind of kept that ambiguity from the other tale. The key difference is at the end though. None of that supernatural bit happens at all in the Hawker tale. Coppinger actually flees mysteriously and romantically, taking a ship and leaving Cornwall in a great storm with his crew, and is never seen again. And so it's meant to be more true to life, though the story does end with a not very natural or likely seeming ending, where a meteor, or storm bolt as it is called, which is a great term, comes through the roof of Coppinger's house and lands before the chair that he has abandoned. So I stuck the Coppinger story onto the beginning of a different tale, The Wrecker and the Death Ship, which was basically everything where Coppinger was dying onwards. That tale is taken from the works of both Robert Hunt and William Bottrell, who I've talked about before in the Enchanter of Pengesic series. Hunt was a folklore collector who published a very large influential work of Cornish folklore and folk tales called Popular Romance of the West England. That came out in 1865 and was wildly successful. And Bottrell was a source of Hunt, a storyteller and a collector himself, who also then wrote a work off the back of Hunt's success. They both include a version of this story in their works, Bottrell probably being the one to have collected it given that's what he did. So in that tale we just have an anonymous wrecker with the story just focusing on the ship coming for him, in death, the Parsons, all of that lot. The location of that tale is in St Just, a town at the very western end of Cornwall, but though I made the whole tale a bit less specific as the Coppinger one is set somewhere else anyway. And yes, it's one of those stories that's less a story than just a thing that supposedly happened. A weird thing, yes, but it happened. And exactly why it's happening, and if there's any lessons to be drawn from it, well that all remains very unclear, both to me and I think in the tale. It wasn't like the wrecker was punished in life, he very much was not. Obviously the implication is kind of that his soul is going to hell, but the sequence of events seems strange. The ship, then the destruction of the house, then the ship goes, then the pig, then his body gets taken, or maybe only the coffin. It doesn't make a lot of narrative sense, and why this happened to the wrecker rather than a lot of other bad people, well, not at all clear. Even Bottrell seems to be a bit confused about some of the details and why they are there. He says, quote, It does not appear what business the black pig had in the funeral procession. Such is the way, however, in which the story is always told. Unquote. Which I like, and it also implies that this was a folk story told a number of times. 
Now, of course, there is a very long tradition in European folklore of sinners being taken away by supernatural forces, but this one does seem very specifically tied to this particular wrecker, with lots of extraneous details and nothing explicitly saying that was happening. It's more just like, the people experienced all of this, wow that was strange. And you know I love stories like that, so it's a win from me, I hope you enjoyed it too. So, I combine this with the story of Coppinger because he seemed to be exactly the kind of archetypal, larger-than-life, villainous wrecker that this story was about. Now, there is a possibility there was some real-life figure that Coppinger was based on. I found this really tricky to get to the bottom of. Figures have been suggested. There are two possible Coppingers who existed at the end of the 18th century who could have given rise to the legend, but neither of them are exactly right. Without going down the rabbit hole on this one, I think it's fair to say they were probably quite unlike the Coppinger described here. So, that maybe kind of leads us into stories and reality here. I want to set aside the supernatural for a minute and instead just focus on wrecking. Tales of wrecking are now very associated with Cornwall and typically have at their centre those dastardly wrecker characters which you've met. You've either got this evil person who's at the centre of it all, or you've got bands of locals working together in the other kind of common story variant. In both, you've got Boat's Lord using the false lights I mentioned, the killing of survivors, general violence, sadism and bloodshed. So there's a real question of where do these stories come from and how true are they? One of the original reasons I chose to do a wrecking story rather than a smuggling story was because I thought I might end up having to say something about smugglers probably being mostly okay and understandable and other awful left-wing views, whereas wreckers I could lean into as definitely evil. Well, after reading a bit, it turns out I'm now sympathetic to wreckers as well. So to whoever wrote that review that implied that I'm too left-wing, sorry about that, it doesn't seem to be going away. Now, for almost everything I'm going to say now, I'm almost totally beholden to Dr. Catherine Pierce, who at time of recording is based in the University of Portsmouth, and who has written extensively on the subject of Cornish wrecking very recently indeed. Obviously, for these discussion sections, I try to get different viewpoints and different academics, particularly when I'm quoting from sources writing decades ago, but here there's nothing really any extra research I could do to add to what Dr. Pierce has done, as she has covered it in such a great depth. So, as you might be able to tell, I enjoyed reading her work. She goes really far into the reality of wrecking and on the origin of stories of wrecking. I'm going to be touching on relevant bits very briefly, but there's a lot to it. If you're all interested, I'm going to put the links to her works on the website. I'm barely going to touch on most of the topics here, but I just think it's relevant to talk a little bit about the reality of wrecking versus the story I've just told. Key thing, wrecking was not just a Cornish thing. Far from it, in fact. And back in the 19th century, stories about wreckers murdering people was not a Cornish thing either. There were some from Scotland, Wales, Northumberland, for instance. While real newspaper reports of wreckers and violent wreckers come from everywhere with a coast, and Cornwall was not particularly singled out. Wherever there were shipwrecks, there were some lurid stories of wrecking, common not just to the UK, but many other countries with busy ports and dangerous shores as well. It was throughout the 19th century that the myth of wrecking as this evil, particularly Cornish pursuit, would be built up. So coming back to a point I made briefly at the start, about wrecking being a variety of activities of quite different moral standings. Covering at one end actively wrecking a ship and murdering everyone on it, 
all the way to just picking up bits of stuff that have washed ashore and not telling the government. Now, this latter definitely happened and still happens to this day. And this is technically wrecking, but it doesn't really sound like it and it doesn't really bring any of these images I've discussed in the story to mind. So, there is no doubt amongst anyone that people have picked up stuff from ships that have been washed ashore and not told the appropriate authorities. But did any of the more gruesome tales of wrecking ever actually occur in reality? There is a long and complicated and interesting answer to this, but the short one is basically... No, they didn't. People did not intentionally wreck ships. This idea of false lights to lure them in is not true. Yes, lots of ships were wrecked, but this was simply a function of busy international shipping, wooden ships, and not of people on shore causing them, as long-lasting and appealing as that story might be. Now, back in the past, there were certainly organised wreckers involving people of all social classes, collecting things that had fallen off ships, and wholesale taking things from wreck shipped. On some very rare occasions, violence broke out. This was an illegal act after all, the penalties were severe. But the slaughter of shipwreck survivors does not seem to have been a thing. Far, far more likely, in fact, was that people, even those who might take goods from a ship, would try to save shipwreck survivors, even at a cost of themselves and great danger to their own lives. On some very, very rare occasions, ships were reported to be attacked and have their cargo stolen, but Pierce notes this happened at times of famine and other severe economic hardship, rather than being anything standard. And it really doesn't seem to have happened very often, unlike the more usual gathering of materials salvaged, which certainly seemed to go on as long as there were wrecks. So, overall, while taking things from ships happened, understandably, I think, in these poor communities, but all the rest of it, Nope, just plain made up. So given that, how do we end up with tales of evil wreckers like the one I've just subjected you to, being so predominant in the folklore, circulating in oral tradition, and being such a mainstay of more modern depictions of wreckers, particularly in the 20th century? It's hard to pin down exactly, but there is a definite route that Dr Pierce suggests this enters the common imagination. And this kind of comes not from oral folklore originally. Pierce references a very popular 1724 work by Daniel Defoe, who claims that wreckers on the Scilly Isles, just off the coast of Cornwall, are, quote, fierce and ravenous, greedy and eager for prey, unquote. Newspaper reports of wrecking across the country, including Cornwall, could be very hostile. Pierce quotes a 1751 report describing wreckers as, quote, hungry cormorants, more barbarous in their nature than cannibals. And it's interesting to me that the wrecking in question didn't involve bringing down the ship, it just involved taking some of the goods. And it's wreckers of even this much lesser sort who are frequently condemned in this language in newspapers across the country, painted as violent mobs or rabbles, a rabble of poor people at that, the very worst. The condemnation came from the legal system, from newspapers and from clergymen. And there was celebration, for instance, when a man convicted of stealing rope from a wreck was given a death sentence which seems a very civilised act, not like those barbarous wreckers. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, the newspapers also started to publish tales of the false lights and sailors being murdered or having their clothes stolen from them, stories with no truth to them. So very different from the uh, papers today, I think. The wreckers were utterly demonised. Now this was happening in all coastal regions of the UK, but here's where we get back to the wrecker as a Cornish figure. 
In Pierce's theory on this, it's the writings of Methodists in the mid-19th century that used Cornwall as a backdrop for their shipwreck novels, which were extremely popular moral tales that really helped to cement Cornwall's reputation. The trope around wreckers and shipwrecks focused on this as a good setting because it was more remote and removed from standard English life, and the idea was so successful it got replicated and became a bit of a trope that cropped up multiple times in this very exciting-sounding Methodist literature. And then by the mid-19th century, these tales of Cornish wreckers start to enter historical works about Cornwall from literature and from the press, and this only increased in the 20th century. At all points along this journey, there's lots of people pointing out that it's not true, but these stories became so widespread that some less scrupulous writers of popular histories which just start assuming that this must be true. And as they became written down in books that claim they were real history, other books referenced them. And so the process continues and the misinformation gets into the public consciousness. It all began to become a bit of a self-fulfilling cycle, and after a while, as tales of wreckers everywhere else dropped off, Cornwall was now intimately connected with wrecking. And this just continues in the 20th century with people using the Cornish wreckers trope, Daphne du Maurier's novel Jamaica Inn being a very popular prime example. Now, if you've been paying attention, you will notice that my primary source for this, the deaf ship, was a folktale, not literary, not from the press. And what I think this means is that folklore out there is drawing directly from these literary sources and from the newspapers. These were stories that were first disseminated in written form and they then entered the oral tradition, probably. Now on the face of it, this doesn't sound like a really surprising conclusion and it isn't. However, I think when people are talking about folklore, especially oral folklore, there is still a popular perception that this arises untouched from stories passed down from generation to generation by word of mouth only. Though, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, I suspect you realise it doesn't work like this, but here we have a prime example. A good story will likely be retold in many forms, passing between the various different ways that we tell stories in the society, and oral used to be one of the biggest of those, because, after all, people love a good story, in this case about an evil wrecker. An example of how folklore and literature and written histories really do all interact with each other in this case to tell and retell some great, but ultimately fictional stories of wrecking, often glossing them as though they were fact. And I have just continued that tradition. Right, okay, I think I've laboured this point here. Wrecking wasn't like it is in the stories, but it certainly happened all over the place, but it didn't mean that. And I'm not going to offer an opinion on the reality of ghost ships from hell. Make your own mind up on that one. That is now it for this episode. I realise it's been a bit of a wait for this one, and I'm afraid I'm still running slightly behind with the podcast, so expect the next episode probably in a month or so. Unfortunately, life is a bit much at the moment, and I've got a bit of admin to do on the podcast. I'm going to move away from SoundCloud, probably, which won't really matter for you who are already listening, but might help me get a few more listeners. In the meantime, I do hope to get a Patreon members episode about a mermaid out at some point. I'm also on TikTok occasionally doing short videos, and I'm still actively looking to move into live storytelling, something I really hope to do by the end of the year, and uh, I'll let you know how plans for that go. If you're interested in that, though, please do let me know on Twitter, Instagram, or on the website, because it would be great to get a sense of how much interest there might be in that. Thank you so much to my patrons, who have been fantastic as always. 
Thanks especially this episode to Megan Rose and Natu Desu, who have signed up since the last episode. The support of my patrons and those who've left reviews really does mean a hell of a lot. It's kind of why I'm still encouraged to keep doing this. If you want to help support the podcast, you can sign up now at Patreon, and you only ever pay when I release a new Patreon-only episode. So, not too frequently, but there are eight Patreon-only episodes now, featuring a large variety of different topics, the latest being about a bogey beast from Northumberland. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Karen Murray Burquist, an academic, storyteller, artist and researcher into ghost ships and legends of the Arctic, amongst other things. Karen put me on to a number of different nautical tales. She has a YouTube video telling a number of stories, including a shorter version of this one, under the wonderful name Chapoetry, I do love a good pun, where she wears a hat and tells stories and reads poems and like. A link to all her work is on the website, and I think you might find it very interesting. Okay, so, next episode I'm going to be picking up something I left behind a few years ago now, incredibly, by dipping back into Irish mythology and continuing my telling of the Fenian cycle, following the adventures of Fionn McCool. But don't worry, I'll be making a big long introduction so you don't have to have listened to the other episodes in the series necessarily, though if you want to, do go back and listen to those. Hopefully it'll be a little shorter between episodes, but as always, I can't promise it. I do hope you'll join me again whenever it is. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Bye.